0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Mary's Lamb is a poem that tells the story of a little girl who brought her pet to school because everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. The verse from 1830 is better known as the basis for the nursery rhyme, Mary Had a Little Lamb. As beloved as it is, it's not the greatest contribution to American culture made by the writer Sarah Josepha Hale. That was making Thanksgiving a national holiday. Already celebrated in parts of New England, including Hale's native New Hampshire, she thought that spreading it across America would be a welcome unifier at a time of growing tensions between North and South. By 1854, more than 30 states and territories officially marked the day, but it wasn't until nearly a decade later that Hale achieved her goal. Writing to President Lincoln in September 1863, she told him only he had the power to make Thanksgiving permanently an American custom and institution. Soon after he did, and ever since, most Americans have got together on the fourth Thursday in November to eat until they burst. It's a much-loved celebration of overabundance. But now we know mass meat-eating is bad for the planet. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prodo, the Economist's US editor, and each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, can Americans eat less meat? At Thanksgiving, the nation expresses its gratitude for family, the harvest, and a big, juicy turkey. The US consumes the most amount of meat per person in the entire world. And if it's serious about tackling climate change, it needs to cut back. Will America ever wean itself off meat? With me for this Thanksgiving special are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York Bureau Chief, and John Fasman, the U.S. digital editor. Charlotte, we're recording this on Thanksgiving. What are your plans for the rest of the day?
2: I am going to spend Thanksgiving with my husband's family, so there'll be lots of food, lots of children. I'm bringing thank you presents to the hostess, my sister-in-law, but I'm responsible for absolutely nothing. Um, She's an amazing cook, and this is really her thing, and I am a happily incompetent beneficiary. So it'll be a nice day.
1: I know your approach to cooking generally involves dialing for the nearest takeout. So this is probably a good thing for the extended family, right?
2: Her level of cooking is Olympic. And so it's kind of like showing up to cheer on an Olympian and then asking at the last minute to participate in the relay race. It's like, get out of here. Do not, do not, do not come. You're here to cheer <laughs> me on rather than uh, contribute.
1: Uh, the other person whose level of cooking is Olympic is our dear friend and co-host, John Fasman. John, what are you going to be doing for Thanksgiving?
3: I'm going to start by doing a preemptive trip to the gym with my brother, but after that it's six hours of cooking.
1: Okay, well that sounds good. We're going to be talking about meat and America's relationship with meat and whether Americans might eat less of it for various reasons in this episode. But I think just to be clear up front, there's a Certain degree of hypocrisy here. I think all three of us are carnivores. We eat varying amounts of of meat. So this is a podcast in which we're not going to be lecturing carnivorous listeners about what they ought to be doing, but more exploring some of these questions. But before we get to any of that, John, we're going to begin in your kitchen. That's
3: right, John. I'm glad you said that in the introduction because this is not a show where we lecture and hector people to eat less meat. This is a show where we are trying to be honest about our own struggles. About I'm trying to be honest about my own struggles to eat less meat. Meat has a sort of emotional centrality on holidays, especially this one. And so I've spent a lot of time this week thinking about how to cook a meal centered on meat like hundreds of millions of other Americans, I expect. And so, the first stage for me in turkey prep is the brining, which happened on Monday and which I did with my sons. All right. We have a 14 pound turkey here that we're going to brine.
4: It's like a gross, bright pink, alien like thing. It doesn't look like a turkey, it's gross looking.
3: I promise you, it's a turkey. In the brine is three tablespoons of salt. Okay, rosemary. It
4: smells so good. It smells like rosemary.
3: And then we need to zest the lemon. how do you
4: feel about turkey um i'm not a huge fan of turkey Uh, there are actually a lot of meat i'm not a huge fan of how come um turkey specifically or meat in general
3: let's start with turkey specifically
4: so turkey and chicken um i just think they're, they're too earthy for me they taste a little bit like dirt
3: and what about meat generally is that you don't like the taste you don't like the idea you don't like the the sort of ethics behind it all of the above
4: so it's when I was little it was definitely mostly the taste, but then as I got older the, the, the idea and the ethics definitely didn't didn't help.
3: Now remember I wrote that thing about the future of meat? What if we had meat that was grown in a lab and you didn't have to kill animals for it? Is that better or worse?
4: Um, I actually think that's worse. I think that's scary and I think they should I, I just I don't I'm not gonna eat it unless I unless I, I fully trust it, which I think I'm not gonna do until there's more testing. There's like blood coming out of it, and it's it's frozen. There's like icy blood.
3: There is icy blood. All right, I need to thaw this a little bit.
4: My dad just pulled like a red bone, maybe. It's it's gross. It's the liver. It's the liver. The liver. Which one? The long thing or the little thing?
3: The little thing is the liver. The long thing is the neck.
4: Yeah, that's nasty. It's the grossest thing that I've heard today.
3: The neck, you use to make stock from it. So we'll boil it on the morning of Thanksgiving. It's important if an animal dies so you can eat it, you use as much of it as possible. So you boil the neck to make uh, stock for gravy.
4: Yeah, I'm all for that. I just don't think I need to see it
3: put the neck away until Thursday. And here's the turkey. And I'm going to rub it with the brine. Over the next few days, the brine will make the meat nice and soft, well-seasoned. What do you think of meat, big guy? So
4: I, I think it's like good i i think it's tasty but like it's very bad for the environment so i like it but i'm i really want to get into like the plant-based meats because i i tried those and those really taste like meat to me well what do you think of turkey specifically do you think that's also like really bad for the environment well turkey is less so because it's not like cows where they like actively produce methane which is bad for the environment how do they produce methane They burp. All
3: right, so the turkey is going into the turkey bag here, I'm sealing it up, and that is where it's going to stay until Thursday morning.
2: to say that was the cutest thing I've ever heard, but your sons are so well-spoken and thoughtful. And amidst the various challenges that humanity faces, I'm glad to know that they're two little phasmonites who are going to help carry us all forward.
3: (laughs) That's that's entirely credit to Elisa.
2: Well, that's assumed, right? That's assumed, yeah.
1: (laughs) I'm afraid I think they've upstaged us on our own podcast. I think we might have to turn things over to them from here on in. John, your eldest at one point when you were talking about the turkey neck and making stock, said, I'm all for that. I just don't think I needed to see it. And I think that describes quite a lot of meat eaters' feelings about meat production and meat consumption. Why do you think meat plays such a big part in American celebrations? I think it's a symbol of abundance, right?
3: And that's sort of what was promised to a lot of people when they emigrated here. I think of a dish, you know, an iconic Italian-American dish, which is spaghetti and meatballs, which doesn't really exist in Italy. You wouldn't put meatballs with spaghetti. It's too much food. But over here, because meat was cheap and there was so much of it, of course you pile it on your plate. So it's this symbol of sort of home and hearth and plenty, Which is partly what America is founded on, right? The idea that you can work hard and enjoy the fruits of your labor, and that involves eating whatever you like. It involves eating things that may not have been available in the old country. I also think part of that, I'm glad you brought up my son's comment about not wanting to see it. I think that's part of what facilitates the consumption of so much meat, is that to Americans, it's a thing that comes in plastic packages in the refrigerator aisle. You know, you don't have to see the evisceration. You don't have to hear the screams. You don't have to see the animals packed in factory farms where they suffer so that everyone can have cheap meat. So it's the symbol of abundance delivered to you cheaply, easily, and conveniently, and without the sort of blood and guts behind it that makes it so easy to eat so much meat.
2: Yeah. Abraham Lincoln, when he was making Thanksgiving a national holiday, talked about the blessings of fruitful fields. So I do think the idea of abundance and agricultural productivity is a key part of America's identity on the notion that Americans don't have to see where animals are raised and animals are killed. I mean, I think that's true in a lot of places, right? I mean, there are not that many people in rich countries who are farmers or who grew up on farms. I think that in America, the idea of really, really large animal operations is something that's more distinct here. I've spent time on various big farms, including these confined. The acronym is CAFO, but they are these huge uh, animal farms where you can raise lots of pigs close together, et cetera. And when you go into one, the, the, the smell of that many pigs living together in that close quarters, it stays with you for a long time afterward. But I think that it's always been the case throughout history that people gather together to celebrate big occasions with meat. The difference in America is just how much meat is consumed on a daily basis.
1: Yes, Charlotte, as you say, the real difference is not Thanksgiving. It's the amount of turkey that people have in their sandwiches on a pretty regular day at lunchtime. John, as you mentioned, when you were cooking with your sons, you wrote this big piece for The Economist recently, a technology quarterly about the future of food, where you talked to lots of tech companies that are making substitutes for meat. What do the numbers show about younger Americans' attitudes to meat eating? Are they, are they eating less?
3: Younger Americans are more likely to define themselves as vegan or vegetarian than older Americans. It's still a fairly small minority, but if I'm remembering correctly, I think surveys also show that younger Americans are more open to substituting some of their meats with plant-based meats, and they're more open to tasting cell-cultured meat, and that's meat grown outside the animal. You take a biopsy from an animal, you grow meat in a bioreactor in a scaffold. So what you have is actual meat just without the animal slaughter. I think there's tremendous potential there. there. are some real hurdles, there's some cost hurdles, and they need to figure out how to get over. But the advantage of cell cultured meat is that it meets Americans where they are, right? People just do consume a lot of meat, they expect a lot of meat. And I think hectoring people to eat less of it is well and good, and we should keep explaining why it's good for the environment and their health that people do so. But on the assumption that not everyone will listen, it's good to have alternatives that don't have the same environmental impact as traditional farming does. And so that, I think, is where plant-based meat and cell-cultured meat has stands to make the most change in the American diet. It's not giving vegetarians a tastier alternative. It's giving carnivores an alternative that does not contain the environmental downsides of meat production and consumption.
1: Okay, well, we'll get into some of the ethical and environmental questions around eating meat later. And in a moment, we'll go back to a nationwide contest to find the perfect chicken. But first... This is where I normally ask you to subscribe to The Economist. Thank you for doing that, those of you who have. Please still do it. But this week, I'm after another favour, if that's okay. If you go to economist.com slash USPodSurvey... There's a questionnaire we'd love you to fill out it'll help us to know more about what you like and what you don't like about checks and balance and other economist podcasts and we'll use the results to make our shows even better that link again is economist.com slash us pod survey you'll find it and also how to subscribe in the notes for this episode
5: Did you know that poultry is the nation's third largest agricultural crop? A three billion dollar business?
1: In the aftermath of the Second World War, Americans needed something different from their chickens.
5: Breeders have achieved great results in boosting the egg output of the average hen. Today's hen averages 154 eggs per year, and some birds produce over 300 annually. But with this emphasis on egg production, Poultry meat has been more or less a byproduct of the industry. Relatively few poultrymen took steps to develop better meat-type chickens.
1: Emerging from the privations of wartime rationing, a growing population wanted cheap and easy to produce protein. Bigger, juicier chickens could provide the answer.
5: Say that makes me hungry.
1: The federal government partnered with grocery chain A&P to launch a competition to find the
5: chicken of tomorrow. A broad-breasted bird with bigger drumsticks, plumper thighs, and layers
1: of white meat. It was a thorough search. After state and regional preliminaries, the 1948 national finals of the Chicken of Tomorrow contest involved 44 breeders from across America. Each submitted 720 eggs, their candidates for the meatiest chicken the eggs were hatched and raised under identical conditions.
5: Now at 18 days, the chick is almost ready to emerge from its shell.
1: And a documentary film was made to chart each step.
5: On the 21st day, its sharp beak pokes through to daylight as it seeks its freedom.
1: That freedom, of course, was short-lived, as the test chickens inevitably ended up in the abattoir.
5: Each lot was dressed separately, cooled and ready for judging. Every sixth bird selected as a judge's sample and rated for meat
1: characteristics. Before the carcasses were put on display as part of a celebration that included a street parade with its own Chicken of Tomorrow Queen atop a chariot decked with white feathers.
5: Visitors from Canada and all parts of the United States saw on the stage an average pullet and cockerel from each flock and a box of dressed poultry representing each entry.
1: Two breeds emerged triumphant. White Plymouth Rocks from Connecticut were deemed to have the best carcass characteristics, while New Hampshire Reds from California were the most economical to produce. Eventually, these were crossbred to make the perfect bird, which is still eaten by Americans today. The success of the contest
5: proves conclusively that it is possible to breed chickens with superior meat-type characteristics.
1: The Chicken of Tomorrow competition was emblematic of the need to produce more food for less. This was both to feed the post-war baby boom, and also as a tool of Cold War soft power to display the abundant benefits of capitalism. ...widespread
5: production of superior meat-type chickens...
1: But we're now dealing with the consequences of this excess.
5: Even today, housewives are enjoying improved meat-type chickens. They sure make wonderful eating.
1: The tomorrow of 1948 was very different from the tomorrow of today.
5: Yes, sir, make mine chicken. Chicken of tomorrow,
1: that is. Charlotte, that Chicken of Tomorrow program was all about creating abundance. And one of the problems, I suppose, now is that it was too successful. And this is an interesting political problem for America, I think, because normally in politics, we're dealing with problems of there not being enough stuff to go around. Meat, to the extent that the excess consumption of meat in America is a problem, and I think it is a problem environmentally, at least, at the very least, meat consumption is a problem of plenty, right? And we're not used to having to solve problems of plenty in American politics.
2: So meat is bad for the environment for a variety of reasons, but it's worth honing in on beef, which people may know vaguely why beef is bad for the environment, but to put some figures on it. The UN estimates that livestock accounts for about 14% of all man-made greenhouse gas emissions. That's a lot. So greenhouse gas emissions include, of course, not only carbon, but importantly, as it relates to livestock, it includes methane, which is a much more potent greenhouse gas. It has more damaging effects than carbon does. And beef is by far the most damaging. It's responsible for about double the emissions uh, levels of lamb per kilogram of beef, nearly 10 times that of chicken. So that's why hamburgers, why beef gets a lot of attention. In America, it's interesting, the land use that meat accounts for is really vast. So if you think about the lower 48 states, so that's not including Alaska or Hawaii. Alaska is obviously absolutely enormous, so can skew things. But if you're thinking about just the lower 48 states, the contiguous land there, 41% of it is related to the raising of livestock. It could be pastures where livestock graze or land for crops that feed animals. But 41% of American land in the contiguous lower 48 revolves around livestock. That's a really interesting figure to get our heads around. So when you think about meat and America's consumption of meat, it's worth keeping some of these figures in mind.
1: And Charlotte, just sticking with you for a moment, you've both covered the Midwest for The Economist, which involves spending a lot of time talking to farmers. And also, you've covered the environment, which means you spent a lot of time thinking about the impact that farming has on climate change. How has all of that reporting affected how you eat?
2: Um, I try to eat less meat than I used to. So I rarely eat meat at lunchtime. And have it more more rarely, but I enjoy eating meat. I mean, the issue though, think about beef. So Americans eat just an enormous amount of beef. So there's some other countries that have big, big producing industries as well, Uruguay or Argentina, but to compare America to Britain as a point to accentuate this, America eats more than twice the level of beef than do Brits.
1: And John, you're a fantastic cook first. You also have covered climate change policy in your job writing about American politics and you're really interested as we've said already in the in the future of food and have written about some of the technology behind lab grown meat how has all of that affected what you decide to put on your plate I definitely
3: eat less meat than I used to, and I agonize over it a lot more than I used to when I do eat meat. I think there's also just a much wider array of choices available to those of us who cook for our families and who want to give them an alternative to meat. There's just more protein we have access to, although I think that hasn't gone far enough. Bill Gates recently said that rich countries should switch to 100% synthetic beef I think that's a good idea. In theory, I think that the process to get there will be politically very difficult. I'm glad Charlotte brought up the land use question, right? 41% of land in the lower 48 is geared around livestock or centers on livestock. One of the great hopes of the plant-based and cell-cultured meat industries is that if they really do take off, that is, if they become affordable, if they become eaten, maybe not even as widely as meat, but if they become eaten widely enough that you can start to reduce the amount of land that revolves around livestock, those farms can effectively return to nature. They can become carbon sinks rather than carbon emitters. So the tremendous upside of eating less meat isn't just that we won't have cows emitting methane or that we won't have sort of so much land dedicated to livestock. It's the land that we do have dedicated to farming could be made environmentally productive. That is, could capture carbon rather than emitting it.
2: It's worth pointing out that the problem with meat consumption patterns going forward, it is about America's consumption of meat, but it is really about um, other countries starting to eat more meat as well. So inching up towards America's standards. So average meat consumption in the US has actually risen only slightly since 1970. It's really Americans eating a lot more grain and fats like butter and cream, but the meat consumption has ticked up just a bit. And where the really, really dramatic increase has come from is in Asia and in, in places around the world. And meat production there has increased a lot as well. So China, uh, China's meat production went from about 20 million tons a year in the mid-1980s to well over 80 million tons a year in the past 10 years. So, you know, this is a global question with America's patterns informative for how we think about this challenge on a worldwide basis.
1: Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, I think as the chicken of tomorrow example makes clear, for most of human history, the struggle has been to produce enough affordable protein to put on people's plates so they can develop into healthy human beings. It's really very recently in human history that this problem of superabundance with attendant problems like obesity has come along.
2: So there's a bit of tension here, right, when people talk about trying to switch away from meat eating in the rich world, it's all well and good for Americans to say we should eat a little bit less meat. But for other countries, they have an interest in being able to enjoy meat and protein as their the income levels in their countries rise. It's not that dissimilar in some ways from America having gotten rich on the basis of industrialization that was hugely carbon intensive through the combustion of coal and oil, and then starting to scold other countries for for their own emissions as their incomes rise.
1: Yeah, I agree with all of that. We'll be back in a moment to discuss the politics of persuading Americans to eat less meat.
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care,
1: John, in addition to brining the turkey this week, you've been talking to some people who've been trying to get Americans to eat less meat. Yeah, we've talked about why Americans need to
3: eat less meat, but the how is in many ways the more interesting question. And to discuss that, I spoke to Caroline Bushnell from the Good Food Institute, which is a nonprofit working to grow the market for meat alternatives. Some people are put off buying these alternatives because they're really expensive, more expensive than regular meat. And I began by asking her how the industry can overcome that.
6: I think it's important to acknowledge that we're still in the really early days of this industry right? I mean, it takes scale to get those economies, right? That's why it's called economies of scale and able to bring down the cost of products and then sell them at a more affordable price to consumers. So there's a lot of different levers there, but one of the keys, getting that scaled manufacturing, which we are seeing a lot of progress on. Some of the these next-generation plant-based meat companies are continually raising funds um, and putting those towards uh, production. Because right now, some of the challenges we actually see in the market are more from a supply side than a demand side. So that's really going to be critical. It's also why when we think um, beyond just plant-based meat, um, for example, towards cultivated meat, we believe it's really critical um, that we get more government investment in this space So we can kind of open source that foundational science and the technology that's going to be needed to scale cultivated meat and bring these products to market at an affordable price point. And and that kind of brings me to a broader point, which is really that alternative proteins are just massively underinvested in as a climate technology solution.
3: I'm glad you mentioned cultivated meat before. And that is for listeners who may not know the term, that's meat that is grown from cells taken from an animal in a bioreactor is effectively animal meat grown outside the animal. Basically, surveys show that Americans are much less likely to buy lab grown or cultivated meat than consumers are in China and India. Why do you think that is?
6: It's still very early days for for cultivated meat. The, The general consumer awareness of this technology, of the fact that we can grow real animal meat outside of the animal from animal cells, is still low, right? So as these products come closer to being introduced to market, there will be more consumer education and awareness of the benefits the many benefits that that cultivated meat provide, and when we look at consumer surveys that have been done around this, um, acceptance increases significantly when consumers understand the process and understand the benefits. So perhaps some of those benefits are more clear to consumers in other regions based on uh how they were presented or the research that has um, been done to date. But I I believe even in the U.S., the early studies do show a a pretty strong willingness to try the product, especially when they understand uh, why. And I think the companies in this space are really committed to the transparency, right? There's the famous quote about, if slaughterhouses had glass walls, nobody uh, would eat meat. Well, on the flip side, cultivated meat companies are proud of their production process and they're committed to a transparency. And so we hear about things like streaming their process and really bringing consumers in to understand how it's made.
3: So let me ask one last question about that shift that we're going to see, that we need to see if we're going to make an impact on the climate through reducing meat consumption. You have an enormous industry in America that revolves around the production and consumption of meat. How do you get people to consume less meat while still taking care of those people who work in the meat industry? What happens to them if we become a society of people who eat much more cultivated meat, more plant-based meats?
6: Plant-based meat and other alternative proteins will require a variety of crops um, for production, right? Historically, um, most plant-based products have been made with wheat and soy uh, using kind of the side streams from other industries, but those aren't necessarily the best crops for plant-based meat, right? We're seeing a lot of um, innovation in legumes, uh, in the dairy category, of course, with oats, And a lot of these other crops that we need to, uh, back to your question of price, we need to scale the production of these other plant protein inputs. On the corporate side of things, right, we've seen all of the large meat companies, pretty much all of them, rebrand themselves as protein companies. And I've heard many meat company executives say something to the effect of, you know, we'll provide protein in whatever form consumers want. Uh, And I think they're increasingly acknowledging that that is in an animal-free form. And so they are shifting towards that, which also gets back to the question of price, right? Because they have extensive manufacturing capabilities, distribution capabilities, sales and marketing infrastructure developed that they can bring to bear on bringing other forms of protein to market.
1: John, I can see that it's attractive politically to say that, you know what, this transition can benefit everyone and it's going to be fine for the farmers because they'll still have a role. Do you think that's actually true or do you think that's just something that people say to try and get other people on board for what could potentially be, like lots of transitions in any kind of industry, pretty painful actually for the people who are currently tasked with doing the production?
3: I think it is true that this transition well-managed could work out for everybody. But I think politically, it's really tough to do that. I mean, just look at the politics around the transition to green energy. The Republicans have portrayed it as an effort to shut down coal plants, to make them bankrupt. The truth is not many people work in the coal industry anymore. We all know we're going to have to transition to green energy. So you would think it's in everyone's interest to make this transition work for a lot of people. You've already seen something like this happen with meat consumption, right? There's that story that went around earlier this year that said falsely that Joe Biden wants to ration Americans' meat consumption to one hamburger per month. Now, nothing like that has ever been in the president's plans, but you can see what happens with the specter of change. I mean, there's always a political benefit to the opposing party whipping up fears of change. And my concern is that unless this is done extremely delicately with outstanding messaging, that's what will happen here. It's what will happen anyway. But you need really good messaging to counter what will inevitably be political scare tactics around this change.
2: I was struck by Tom Vilsack, the agriculture secretary, having to say in response to that scandal, quote, there's no effort designed to limit people's intake of beef coming out of President Biden's White House or USDA. I mean, that he has to spell it out that way is pretty ridiculous. I think that... The issue is really about behavior and culture rather than necessarily economics to uh, to John's point. But I wouldn't downplay the economics too much just because u s. farm states, you know, a, a huge amount of the grain that is produced in America goes toward not the consumption of grain per se, but it goes to feedstocks. And so U.S. farm states have an interest in the rest of the world continuing to increase their meat consumption too because Americans are eating more chicken, chicken uses less feed, most of the growth in meat consumption is going outside the U.S. So they want to continue to export more corn and soybeans to other meat-producing countries to help meet that global demand. So there is a real interest from U.S. farm states, which account for a disproportionate amount of power in the Senate, to not only sustain American meat consumption, but also meat consumption elsewhere.
1: And Charlotte, just on that, how different is the Biden agriculture policy to the Trump agriculture policy so far as we can tell?
2: Well, one of the interesting things about agriculture policy in general is just the amount of support that does go to American farmers. So the Trump administration had a huge amount of support for farming just simply because, in large part, because of the trade wars impacting exports of American grain. So uh, Trump needed to sustain his support among rural America, and part of that was through Giving them more cash. But to the extent that you look at how President Biden talks about climate and farming, it's really about support to help farmers mitigate climate change, to think about introducing some new technologies. To the extent that the Biden administration has become involved in the meat industry, it's really about competition issues among meat packers, which, if resolved, would probably lower meat prices for American consumers. So I would describe the Biden administration as serious in thinking about how to mitigate the emissions from farming practices, but really hands-off, to Tom Vilsack's point, in thinking about behavioral change. I think that behavioral change in terms of reducing meat consumption is going to come from the private sector. And just to that point, it's worth remembering that the only time in recent history that American meat consumption has declined was a really minor dip from 2007 to 2013, which had to do with the Great Recession lowering incomes. It also coincided with rising prices for meat due to higher ethanol demand for corn, um, a few bad harvests, et cetera. So it's really a big lift to think about reducing that consumption.
1: So, John, as Charlotte says, this transition, if it happens at all, is going to be slow. Looking way into the distance, and with the benefit of your reporting on lab-grown food, lab-grown fish, lab-grown meat, what do you think we'll be eating for Thanksgiving around about 2050?
3: This is not a hopeful answer, but I think we'll probably be eating really exactly the same thing. There may be marginally more vegetarians, there may be marginally more sort of experimentation with plant-based turkeys and the like, but you can't discount the centrality of a whole roasted turkey in the middle of the Thanksgiving table. And the truth is the cultured meat industry is in its infancy now, as Caroline said, and it's really, really far away From being able to produce anything as sort of detailed and intricate as meat on the bone. And I just think that for most Americans, they're not willing to give up that image of a turkey on their table on Thanksgiving Day. So I expect that what we eat in 30 years is going to look really similar to what we're eating now.
2: I don't know, though, John. I mean, I think that if you still have that Norman Rockwell Thanksgiving image with the big turkey, and then you just have people eat only beef at dinner time and instead they have a salad or mac and cheese or whatever it is they want to eat for lunch you could have a bit of a reduction i mean the issue isn't the turkey as we've been talking about right it's the it's the big mac it's the hamburger at every single meal so i think having spent less time looking at behavior patterns than you i think i'm a little bit more optimistic that americans could start to eat a little differently and that even small changes actually would have a pretty big impact on that annual number.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I've started to eat a bit like a medieval European peasant, which is to say to have meat on feast days, special occasions, and to spend more money on that meat than I otherwise would would have i mean if you go back a few hundred years meat was incredibly expensive and so you would have it at easter or at christmas or when there was a particular saint's day that seems to me to be quite a good way to eat particularly if you can know the farmer know where the meat came from know that it's been raised well who knows i'm the opposite of an early adopter but i could imagine lots of other people doing something similar and maybe mixing that with some more cultured meat and cultured fish and, and that sort of thing too Well, we even have a Thanksgiving-themed quiz this week. The Economist first mentioned the holiday in an 1846 article about the flower trade in New York, writing that on Thursday, November the 26th, the weather having set in cold, there was fair business done, notwithstanding it was Thanksgiving Day. Question. Thanksgiving is celebrated on the fourth Thursday in November, but which president moved it to one week earlier in a bid to help the economy? FDR.
2: I mean, that's a good guess. Who knows? That sounds right. Was it in the Depression? But I have no idea. As ever.
1: It was FDR between 1939 and 1941. Apparently it wasn't much of a success. Having an extra week of Christmas shopping didn't boost sales. That was what he was hoping for. The country split over this, with some observing Franksgiving on the penultimate Thursday and the rest Thanksgiving a week later. Question two... A Thanksgiving tradition is the presidential turkey pardon, of course. What were the names of the two turkeys pardoned by President Biden this year? Peanut butter and jelly. Um, Correct, yet again. I'm sorry, Charlotte.
2: Totally fine.
1: (laughs) Only one turkey takes part in the official ceremony. Another is a backup, but both end up being spared. Previous pardoned turkeys include corn and cob, bread and butter, and mac and cheese. I was kind of hoping for Don and Eric, to be honest. (laughs) John, it must be almost time to put that turkey in the oven. It's lovely to talk to you as ever. Have a great Thanksgiving. Thanks, John. Uh, Charlotte, I hope you have a wonderful time surrounded by your family, including your newest arrival. Thanks, John. And happy Thanksgiving, of course, to all of our listeners. If you want to read John's Technology Quarterly on the future of food, then go to economist.com slash technology quarterly. It's really, really interesting. To read that, of course, you'll need to subscribe. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to do that. That's in the notes for this episode, along with the link to that listener survey I mentioned earlier. Thank you also to our producers, Harriet Noble and Nicola Rofast. We'll be back next week with another episode. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week.